Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So on page uh, 10 in your bulletin, uh, the gospel reading read just a moment ago, uh, take a look at verse 21, the first verse. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then also verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Notice the pattern there. What's, what's Jesus doing? He's not disagreeing with the Ten Commandments. Rather, he's disagreeing with popular interpretation of the Ten Commandments, which assume that as long as you don't kill someone, as long as you don't shed blood, you've kept the commandment. Or as long as you stop short of the physical act of adultery, you've kept the commandment. Jesus says no. Jesus says obedience to God's commandments includes thoughts as well as deeds. Jesus teaches that anger is the root of murder. It's part of the same poisonous plant. Jesus teaches that lust is the root of adultery. It's part of the same poisonous plant. Now, take a look at the cover of your bulletin. What you see on the cover is really kind of a time-lapse photograph showing seed germination. And notice the first part of the plant to germinate, or the seed to germinate, is what? It's the root. It's the root. The root's growing downward, right? Now, as the root grows downward, it anchors the plant in the ground, and it begins to absorb water. And as the root begins to absorb water, the seed's able to send up a shoot. And the shoot will eventually peek out of the surface of the ground, and that's the part of the plant that we see. But before you see any shoot, the root is already at work underground, beneath the surface, doing its thing, making possible the rest of the plant. And that illustrates how sin works in our lives. Sin begins below the surface as a thought, say, anger or lust. 
For example, if, if it's anger, and if anger goes unchecked, if it's not repented of, if you nurse anger and, and justify your anger, guess what? It does not go away. It grows. And it no longer remains below the surface. It emerges above the surface. It could be in the form of gossip or some sort of verbal abuse. And if verbal abuse is not repented of, it can metastasize into physical abuse. And if the physical abuse is not dealt with, if it's not repented of, it can become murder itself. Jesus considers anger every bit as serious as murder because anger is the root of murder. And just as the root supports the plant above the ground, the act of murder always has anger as its supporting root. Now that doesn't mean that all anger leads to murder, but all murder begins with anger. That's why anger matters so much to Jesus, and that's why it should matter to you and to me. So I draw your attention to Roman numeral one on page 11. By the way, it's the same with adultery. Not all lust leads to adultery, but all adultery begins with lust. It's part of the same poisonous plant. So Roman numeral one, sinful thoughts beget sinful actions. I think that's self-evident from experience, is it not? And letter B, your relationships with others impact your relationship with God and vice versa. And in verses 22 through 26 and then 28 through 32 in your gospel reading, Jesus is, is basically saying this, if you refuse to reconcile with a brother or sister, do not assume that everything's right between you and God. If you will not be reconciled to your brother, God is not reconciled to you. That's why the Apostle John wrote, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, He's a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot possibly love God whom he has not seen. Roman numeral two. The Bible never speaks of human anger as righteous. Human anger, it's never righteous. James writes in chapter one that human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. It can't. Letter A, human emotions, including anger, are not inherently sinful. St. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, in your anger, that means anger happens, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anger happens. Offenses occur. Anger results from it. The question is this, what are we doing with the anger? Letter B, there may be justification for anger, but there is no justification to remain angry. No excuse to remain angry. 
That's why we're given the command in Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. You can't stop anger from arising within you. But once it's there, you must get rid of it. Letter C. Our anger is never praised in Scripture. Never is. It is not a virtue. It is not what we would call a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> it's, it's the opposite of that. It's a work of the flesh. It's like a toxic substance that we cannot handle safely. So we have to dispose of it as we do other toxic things. You have to dispose of it safely. Ephesians 4.26, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The setting of the sun is the beginning of a new day in Scripture. Don't let the anger of today carry over to the next day. You do so at your peril. There is a place for anger, but it's not with us. Anger's place is with God. Letter D. The connection between anger and sin is so close that Christ and the apostles virtually equate the two. With the exception of Christ, every example of human anger in Scripture becomes an occasion for sin. Everyone. We read in Luke 9, James and John are offended by some Samaritan people. And so they asked Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven to consume them? <laughs> I've had that thought a few times myself. Maybe you have. But what is Jesus' response? He rebukes them. Or when Jesus is arrested by the temple police. Peter draws his sword and attacks the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. It's, a, I guess, a glancing blow. What does Jesus do? Does he applaud? No. He rebukes. Put your sword away. Those who live by it will die by it as well. Roman numeral three. Anger is the domain of God alone. It's the privilege of God alone. Letter A. His anger is righteous yet he is slow to manifest it. Slow to manifest it. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and forgiveness. That's God. He has a right to be angry. His anger is justified, but he's slow to manifest it. So let her be, the one who remains angry usurps the place of God. I wrote assumes, and later I thought, no, usurps is a better, better way to express that. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Offenses happen. Anger is inevitable. It rises up within us. We can't stop that. But our anger to the offense 
is often worse than the offense. Have you ever noticed that? The, the anger that you manifest in response to something can easily become the problem itself. We're not any good at handling anger. We need to become good at getting rid of it. Roman numeral four. In Christ, God has laid aside his anger. He's laid it aside. Actually, he's poured it out elsewhere. He's disposed of it elsewhere. He's disposed of it on his son, Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been healed. Our relationship with God is restored through the wounds of Jesus. So letter A, forgiveness is God's solution to our anger. Forgiveness is God's solution. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Well, that's easy to say. Just get rid of it, right? Well, try that sometime. It's not so easy, is it? Be kind and compassionate to one another. Well, it's hard to do that when you suffered some sort of grievous offense. Forgiving each other, oh really? <laughs> nice try. Just as in Christ God forgave you, that's the key. That's the key. Remembering how much you have been forgiven is the key to being able to forgive your offender. And when you forgive someone, this is how it works the anger within you begins to subside. It begins to subside. I want to make two quick points about that. Number one, forgiveness is not a feeling. I think most of us know that. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a rational choice, a decision. It is a commitment. And feelings follow commitment. It's not the other way around. If you're committed to someone, to someone's well-being, the feelings eventually follow. But if you base your commitment to them on how you feel at the moment, what happens to your commitment when the feeling is no more? Second point. If you have trouble forgiving someone, it's likely because you've lost sight of how much you yourself have been forgiven by God. The more you and I are aware of our own forgiveness, the more willing we are to forgive. This is why our Lord taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, he's not teaching that our forgiveness of others earns God's forgiveness for us. He's not teaching that at all. What he's saying is that once we realize how great God's forgiveness toward us is, we will gladly forgive others, and we do. Letter B. Reconciliation within the church. A reconciliation among Christians testifies to God's reconciliation with the world. 
You see, Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is not directed at the unbelieving world. Now, there may be some of those people listening in, but he's teaching his disciples. He's addressing anger within the church. He wants us to address our own anger problem. And that's because the people that you and I are most often angry with are the people who are closest to us. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? People in your own family, people in your own congregation. Offenses happen, right? There may be justification for anger, but there is no justification to remain angry. We cannot successfully live with anger. We have to get rid of it, and we do so by remembering how much God has forgiven us, and only then will we gladly forgive others, gladly forgive others, as we ourselves have been forgiven. And that becomes our witness to the world, my friends. Through our offenses, through our screw-ups, God magnifies his mercy. Christians witness to the world not by being perfect, but by forgiving and by being forgiven. Our witness to the world is not our perfection. Our witness to our children is certainly not our perfection. Our witness to the world and to our children is our ability to reconcile even after repeated offenses. Repeated failures. My friends, with Jesus, failure is never final, is it? Our failures are an opportunity to show the world how fallible we really are and to show the world that God's mercy is wide enough to cover even repeat offenders like you and me. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.